When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There are some songs that only take a moment to recognize, and one such example is Werewolves of London. From the iconic piano riff, to the oddball lyrics, to the glorious howl in the chorus, this track has been an instant sing-along to many fans since its late 70s release. To some, Werewolves is just a staple of classic rock radio, a throwback novelty that typically goes over well with the kids. But to others, it's an entry point an introduction to a discography much deeper than one might expect from someone singing a song about movie monsters. Warren Zevon was born in Chicago, Illinois, and at age 13, his family moved him out to Fresno, California, where he would eventually find himself receiving music lessons from composer Igor Stravinsky. A few years later, he launched a music career of his own, along with his friend Violet Santangelo, as a folk duo called Lime and Cybele. Although this was still trendy in the late 60s, Warren found himself in much higher demand as a songwriter than a folky, as his lyrics impressed his contemporaries more than his act. His musical partnership with Violet would not last long, as the times were changing and Warren was always destined to be a solo artist. So he broke away from her and got to work on his debut album. This first record from Warren, which was called Wanted Dead or Alive, was released in 1970 in his words, to the sound of one hand clapping. Although an enjoyable listen, he was clearly not yet ready for prime time. This stumble out of the gates humbled Warren into accepting a respectable band leader gig for the well-established Everly Brothers. Although they were well past their prime, this sideman job taught Warren many badly needed lessons about the music industry, and it also introduced him to one of his most important collaborators, guitarist Waddy Wachtel. Warren would also become friends with Jackson Brown around this time, which was another invaluable connection as Jackson would lend his considerable status to Warren's cause of producing another record. And once Warren secured his shot, Jackson would do all he could to ensure this one made an impact. So he's hanging on to half a heart But he can't have the restless part so he tells her to hasten down the wind. 
Warren Zevon released a self-titled record in 1976, and that would serve as a bit of a do-over debut. This time, people took notice. Warren had arrived. The album was received very well by critics, and music industry insiders immediately took notice. Although it sold much more than his actual debut, this record was still not exactly flying off the shelves, and a proper hit single had still escaped him. The important thing is that he had set a sturdy foundation of stellar songwriting so that there would be real hype for his next release. Jackson Brown would continue his role as the guardian of Warren's career by taking him out on tour and also encouraging Linda Ronstadt to record a number of Warren's songs for her albums. Warren's next release was 1978's Excitable Boy, which many consider to be his masterpiece. And it is, but it's not the only one that could be called as such. Excitable Boy spawned multiple singles, but one stood head and shoulders above the rest. And you already know which one that was. Although not as successful on the pop charts as Werewolves, the rest of the album is Warren firing on all cylinders, both musically and lyrically. The late 70s is one of the greatest periods of all rock history, and the one-two punch of these albums proved that Warren could hold his own against any of his contemporaries. I'm hiding in Honduras I'm a desperate man Sadly, the success was not coming easy to Warren on a personal level. His violent temper and extreme drug and alcohol abuse was burning bridges in both his personal and professional lives. He lashed out at his loyal music partners, as well as his wife, and he alienated the same industry supporters who wanted to see him succeed. As the decade was coming to a close, Warren was spiraling out of control, making those around him wonder if he would even live to see a second decade, let alone write another hit. So without further ado, let's take a look back at the early years of Warren's career. Get yourself a big dish of beef chow mein, as over the next hour and change, my friend Chris and I will chronicle Warren's music and stories from this era. This is Excitable Boys, Part 1, Warren Zevon in the 1970s. Excitable boy, they all said, well, he's just an excitable boy. Don't call it a comeback. It's just our second series. Welcome back to our ongoing songwriter series. We recently wrapped up Dylan Through the Decades last year, which was an epic 
six-part series podcast, plus an interview with Howard Soons, plus we did a countdown of Bob Dylan's best music videos. We did all kinds of Bob Dylan coverage, but we finally closed that chapter, and we are starting a new chapter about a different legendary songwriter, perhaps someone that would even be considered in the class of Bob Dylan, and that is Warren Zevon. And for a little connective tissue, in 2009, Bob Dylan was asked about his favorite songwriters. One of the six names he mentioned was Warren Zevon. So I think there's no one more appropriate to uh, do a songwriter series on. We're going to do four parts looking at each decade of Warren's career, starting today with the 70s. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Joe, as always. Absolutely. So... Going into a retrospective about Warren Zevon is going to be a little different, I think, than looking back at Bob's career, because you were pretty familiar with Bob when we started that project. Yes. Were you as familiar with Warren's career at the start of this one? Not even close. And in terms of his output, I think I was way more familiar with Dylan than I, I, I am with Warren Zevon, because there's just so much more of a catalog there for, for Dylan compared to uh, Zevon. I was a little bit more versed than just like, uh, he's the werewolves of London guy. Like, I think that's a lot of people that's just, he's the, the werewolves guy. Right. I knew some of his other stuff, right? Excitable Boy, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, but certainly not up on the catalog like a true diehard Zevon fan would be, I guess. Yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm similarly versed. I've always loved... Werewolves of London, going back to when I was a kid. That's always been one of my favorite songs. I knew a little bit of some of his other singles because uh, my dad was a fan of his, and my dad would have me burn CDs for him, and he would <laughs> give me lists of songs, and sprinkled through there would be a... Uh, like a mini-disc? Would you, yeah. Would you ever burn a mini-disc with that? No. You know, the I'll Sleep When I'm Dead and Muhammad's Radio and tracks like that. And personally speaking, on a, a bit of an emotional note, I remember that when my mom passed away, some of the music I listened to in that time was some of the stuff that Warren produced at the end of his life. I remember in particular his version of Back in the High Life, which yeah. was originally by Steve Woodwin, and uh, an original song he wrote called Keep Me in Your Heart for a While. That's a very emotionally powerful song. So I had that frame of reference, too. I, I knew about the bittersweet end of his life. But we're not going to be talking about that today. That will be in our conclusion. Today we're going to basically be talking about his beginnings and his heyday, because he had his biggest commercial and critical success in the 70s. Let's do a little precursor here. Let's talk about the 60s just briefly, because this is kind of where he crawled up into the music industry. He had a friend who he had a bit of a crush on. Her name was Violet. They spent a lot of time together, and they were both burgeoning young artists, and they formed a duo called Lime and Cybell, a little folk duo, which in the late 60s was still very much an in thing. They released a couple of singles on this tiny little label, none of which really took off, but Warren was commissioned to do a little songwriting for other artists on the label. Not a whole lot became hits, but not for a lack of trying, because even though the label didn't have a lot of firepower, if you will, they did have one big act, and that act was the Turtles. Yeah, you're familiar with the Turtles? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, unfortunately, very. <laughs> yeah. I can't see me loving nobody but you for all my 
the Turtles were one of those weird groups in the 60s that, like, had some radio hits, mostly by covering other artists like Bob Dylan. The guys in the Turtles loved Warren, so they covered a couple of the songs that he wrote, including one called Like the Seasons, which was originally written for his Lyman Seibel single. What's interesting about that song is that the Turtles covered that and put it on the B-side to a couple of their singles, including the single Happy Together, which, if you know anything about the Turtles, that's the thing you know. Yeah, that's their song. So that's huge, and that's also big money that went to a very young Warren Zevon. Can I say what I love about Lime and Cybell? Yeah. It is so patently 60s folk group. It's both a Y, right? Yeah. right? Like Lime and Cybell. Yep. It's, I mean, this is something being like a mockumentary. This, it, it, there's nothing... There is a, a Mighty Wind vibe yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> Lime and Cybell. Because he was calling himself Stephen Lime. What's interesting about uh, the Turtles putting his song in the B-side of their big hit single was a lot of times artists would put like instrumentals or absolutely originals on the B-side because that was going to be money that was coming to them. Instead, because they just had such an appreciation for Warren, they really wanted money to go to him so he could stay in the music industry and keep working. So they sacrificed a tremendous amount of money by forcing their label, who didn't even want to do it, to put his song, or their cover of his song, as the B-side on that record. I think that's a really interesting thing, and sort of a precursor to a career-long trend of other more established artists really believing in Warren and getting behind him and trying to do things to help his career. And then I should also note that even though Warren co-wrote the song with his songwriting partner Violet, he did not include her in the songwriting credits. So <laughs> a fortune that really should have went to both of them did only go to Warren. Uh, believe it or not, not the last time Warren would be shitty to uh, a significant woman in his life, but we'll get to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Using that as sort of the basis for his career, he did get himself a solo record deal, and he released his first ever solo album called Wanted Dead or Alive in April... 1970. This is one of three records we're going to be talking about today, and I suspect it'll be the one we're ta we talk about the least, because this is very much a not-quite-ready-for-prime-time record. Yeah. Sort of in the same way when we had our first episode about Dylan, Bob Dylan's first album is very proto-Dylan. Not quite fully formed. Dylan seemed to know, and let's not get too much on Dylan, but Dylan seemed to know exactly where, where he wanted to go, though, with that first album. There was an arrow through there that made sense, like for a, a burgeoning folk artist of the time. I like that Dylan started off on that note, because if he had come out of the gates with the free wheel and yeah. Bob Dylan, <laughs> a lot of people would tell you he never got better. That's fair. And I I think that's a, a, a bad trapping that a lot of artists fall into, unfortunately. But, but Wanted Dead or Alive is all over the place. Yeah, and it's not a bad record, but compared to all the other stuff we're going to talk about in Warren's career, it's maybe the least remarkable. But let, let's talk about a couple of things that are on this record. Needless to say, this was a commercial and critical flop. <laughs> Did nothing, numbers-wise. Which is a little bit surprising because it was produced by a kind of a big name for that time. It was produced by a guy named Kim Fowley. And Kim Fowley 
is probably most famous for managing the Runaways. But the, the flip side to that is that he's also perhaps most infamous for sexually assaulting Jesus. Jackie Fox in The Runaways. I was not prepared for that. I bring this up because this guy's a total scumbag, and like that's got to be part of the story if we're going to mention him at all. And if you read the book, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which is a biography of Warren written by his ex-wife, Crystal, it includes some comments from this guy, Kim Fowley, and I read the book not knowing the sexual assault allegations about him, and even without knowing that stuff, this guy comes off as just one of the grossest pigs that's ever been in the music industry. <laughs> so unfortunately, the, the kind of the earliest parts of Warren's story involve him intersecting with um, a real scumbag, but they did clash and they did not finish the project together. Kim says he quit halfway through because Warren was unmanageable And Warren had a great quote. He said, I had a sudden attack of taste and told Kim that I wanted to finish the album myself. (laughs) Holy shit. I'm going to start using that all the time. I had a sudden attack of taste. God, that's good. (laughs) In the same comment, he also said, Wanted Dead or Alive was released in 1970 to the sound of one hand clapping. (laughs) It's a Zen going. Yeah, absolutely, and he's spot on. All right, so let's talk about some of the tracks that are on here, because even though this album's sort of lost to time, I think there's some cool stuff here. There are two songs on here that I think just have a very cool sound to them. One is called Calcutta. Uh It's got some real good guitar on that. to call that Clapton-esque? No, I, I think that's appropriate. Because Clapton was really coming into to his own as more of a solo artist right around this same time, too, so it wouldn't surprise me if his sound was on Warren's mind. Yeah, and it has a, it has a good sound. It, it, it's, it's more of the time. The other stuff is very white man's blues. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not a flattering sound. Well, let's go to that one. Well, it, it, not quite that, but his cover of that New Orleans traditional song, the Ico Ico. I like it. I, I, actually, I actually like his cover of Ico Ico. Yeah. But if we're talking about White Man's Blues, well, I would still probably point listeners to a white man with some actual blues credibility. Dr. John did a cover of this song in 1972. That is way more of an authentic experience listening to that. Yeah, but what I like about Ico Ico from Zevon is it sounds more like his future endeavors. Okay. It's upbeat. It has a... It's piano-driven. Yeah. So this is more of a proto-Zevon track than some of the other ones here? Even though it's a cover, I would say so. It's got more of that vibe. Okay. I wonder if you knew this little trivia fact. You know, he's got the song on here called She Quit Me. And in another example of the people around him doing some heavy lifting, someone in his orbit got that track included on the soundtrack for the film Midnight Cowboy, which I know you love. It wasn't his actual track. It was a cover of the song with uh, the title switched to He Quit Me. So kind of an inverse thing going on there. But I know you love the film Midnight Cowboy. Do you remember this song's inclusion in the film? 
no. <laughs> I find, so I, I did I did read that after you know because yeah, well, I do a little bit of research before sure. we, we do these things, and I did see that I, I I would not have remembered that from that film at all. For that movie, it's all Nelson. Yeah, I have not seen that film. But you've what? talked about it enough that I feel I've seen. But we it. have to do Nelson next, though. <laughs> That's I'm gonna get you on board the Nelson train, brother. Everybody's talking at me. I can't hear a word they're saying. He's another LA guy. So I'm gonna get you going okay. on, on Nelson. Anyways, I like the track "Gorilla." That's yep. got a cool sound to it. And that sounds again. That's like the proto Zevon. It's got that kind of vibe. So the point being is like there's stuff here to connect to. You don't have to be like like if you're a Dylan fan, I think you really have to like early sixties folk to like that first record of his. I don't know if a Springsteen fan who fell in love with Born in the USA is gonna like greetings from Ashbury Park, you know. That's fair. But I think if you're sort of a Werewolves of London casual Warren Zevon fan, I think there are some tracks on this record that you will enjoy. Can we talk about, from what I've seen at least, on Zevon Reddit? Okay. <laughs> universally hated track. What's that? Fiery Emblems is, I think, awesome. Instrumental at the end, I think it's great. I'm stunned to hear that Reddit doesn't like it. People do not, Zevon fans do not like Fiery Emblems. I love it. Fiery Emblems, I made a note here, like, I'm hoping that Warren does this kind of thing more often. I like instrumental tracks from artists who primarily do songs with vocals on Sure. It's sort of a rare treat. I think the best artists will put their instrumental experimentations, you know, on from time to time. And to be fair, Zeebun did take music lessons from Igor Stravinsky. So, I mean, it's, you know... Yeah. (laughs) He's got the chops, one would think. Yes, he he comes from a very strong music background. Count me in disagreement with Reddit. I think that is one of the stronger tracks on the record. (laughs) It's a good song. Any final thoughts on... Wanted dead or alive? We all gotta start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that's right. <laughs> Could be worse, would be my quote. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's high praise. Right. <laughs> gotta start I like, somewhere. I like to think like you go to a Sam Goody back in like 1998. <laughs> there's a CD and it's like the right price sticker on yeah. it. And it's Wanted Dead or Alive. And it's like Joe K. Could, <laughs> be, Could worse. be worse. It could be worse. And then right underneath, Chris Beretta. Gotta start somewhere. Gotta start somewhere. <laughs> All right. After that ringing endorsement. Um, and I think we were more positive on it than most people because most people didn't buy it. And he did not get a follow-up album. He didn't get a second shot. He had started working on a follow-up record. And they made some progress on it, but the label canceled it. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So, comes off of that, and his primary job in the early 70s was a piano player and a band leader for the now late era of their career, the Everly Brothers. <laughs> yeah. The Everly Brothers, most famous for tracks like Hey Little Susie in like the late 50s. And what's that other one? Kathy's Clown. Here he comes, that's Kathy's Clown. I'm not a big fan. I don't have a strong dislike, but I don't know, that late 50s era, it takes a lot to get me to really engage with some of that it's stuff. The, the golden oldies. Yeah. That's the time, time Music Presents. Time Life Music Time presents. Life. Time Life Music Presents. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember when? <laughs> you, when music sounded like music and the... <laughs> soundtrack of our lives yeah of our lives it's like <laughs> oh god it's 2 a.m i should really be in bed it's like, but I it's re- summer i don't need to go to bed right now i really want to order this time life music but i don't even have a dial for i have to i have a rotary phone i can't <laughs> anyway yeah <laughs> for all the gen zers listening when you were growing up would you, at like 2 a.m. in the summer, watch a full Time Life Oh, hell yeah. That's why I like this music. Yeah. That's why, yeah, absolutely. Presenting Sounds of the 80s. All your favorite 80s hits in one incredible collection. Yeah, that's... We're, we're the same, brother. It's probably the most <laughs> embarrassing reality of, like, my music fandom, but foundational blocks yeah. were set because of those 15 second clips of late like night that like commercials that and every like infomercial pro- like as seen on tv product yeah 
from that time period. I could I could just list off the things they can do for you. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. But it is through this job as the band leader for the Everly Brothers is that he meets one of his major collaborators for like the rest of his career, a guitar player by the name of Wadi Wachtel. Now, Wadi is also one of the most famous studio guys of the whole classic rock era. He worked with the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac. and One of the coolest names ever. Great name. Absolutely. <laughs> really cool name. <laughs> you know, when they first met each other, they were very combative because they both had big egos. But once they realized they'd be working together, they actually became very good friends. And Wadi would be, I think, more responsible for Warren's success than anyone besides Warren himself. But in any case, at this point in their career, the Everly Brothers had not had a hit in like almost 10 years. So they were not in a great state career-wise. They put out a record called Stories We Could Tell in 1972, and Warren plays on that. This did not chart at all, which added more pressure to an already very strained relationship between Don and Phil Everly. And much in the tradition of... Many rock brothers, the Van Halen brothers, the Davies brothers from the Kinks, the Gallagher brothers. The Gallagher's, yeah. These two guys, the Everleys, fought constantly and viciously, and the band finally broke up for a very long period of time in July 1973. So Warren would continue to work with both of them on their individual solo projects, but he would eventually leave both of them to launch his solo career. So, that brings us to May 1976, and Warren puts out his self-titled, not-quite-debut album, but pretty much a debut album. Wanted Dead or Alive is sort of (laughs) erased from Warren's release history. This 1976 self-titled album seems to be, like, the actual debut for him. That's what everyone seems to consider it as. And that's really interesting to me because I don't know if this much star power has ever been on anyone's so-called debut record. Among others are Jackson Brown, Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Bonnie Raitt, Glenn Fry, Don Henley, plus J.D. Souther, and like I mentioned earlier, Waddy Wachtel. This is, for 1976, some of the absolute elite tier A-listers. This is right when Hotel California came out and you had Glenn Fryant and Don Henley. This is less than a year before rumors would drop and here you have Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. These are huge names. Now, why would all of these people want to work with Warren Zevon? That is almost exclusively due to Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown met Warren a few years before and became maybe his biggest advocate at this point of his career, at the very start. Jackson got Warren his record deal on Asylum Records, which was run by David Geffen. Okay. And in the 70s, that was known to be the most artist-friendly record label around. So this was a good fit for Warren, but David didn't really want to sign him because he was a nobody. And David thought that Jackson was just trying to get his buddy a deal, But Jackson Brown really believed in Warren and really wanted him to get on a label and get another solo album out there. And once Warren started working on the record, it was Jackson who brought in all these other people to support him. 
So let's talk about this record. It opens very strongly with a track called Frank and Jesse James, yeah. which is an obvious reference to you know the famous outlaws, famous outlaw brothers. The James Gang. Yes. Keep on riding, riding, riding. Frank and Jesse James. Keep on riding, riding, riding. Till you clear your names. It was written as a metaphor for Phil and Don Everly, which I think is really cool. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Warren was coming out of dealing with, you know, Phil and Don fighting each other like crazy and sort of, okay. you know, channeled that experience into writing this song. So I think that's pretty cool. I love this song, by the way. I just like cowboy songs, so that I was kind of sure. predisposed to like yeah, this yeah. track. Are there a couple tracks on this record that you want to point out as your favorites, or, or what do you think about this record? I'm amazed by the quality of the output across the entire album. The only song that really I think is forgettable is like Backs Turned Looking Down the Path. Mm-hmm. Just didn't really resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Like it's not it's not a memorable track. Everything else is just so good. And it's exactly what we expect from Zevon moving forward. Yes. The level of the lyrics, his compositions, everything is so just solid. I mean, they all stand out, honestly. So the two singles from the record were Hasten Down the Wind and I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Hasten Down the Wind is, I would describe it as kind of a sleepy ballad. Yeah. But, you know, with beautiful lyrics. And then I'll Sleep When I'm Dead is just a good old-fashioned stomping rocker, right? Unfortunately, neither one of these charted. (laughs) So I will take this opportunity to say that for the most part, almost nothing in Warren's career actually charted. So sort of with what we talked about in the Bob episodes, not a lot of chart success to report uh, for Warren's career. But even less for Warren, really. Significantly less. (laughs) Significantly less. That's why he's a musician's musician. That's why he's a songwriter's songwriter. You're right. You know? Compared to Warren, Bob was a regular Britney Spears. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, you asked me earlier what what, what songs stand out. I mean, the best one, I think, the best browser are the Eves. And I'm trying to find a girl who understands me But accepting Both in terms of, the, I mean, the writing, the composition, everything about it's just, just gorgeous. It's an absolutely beautiful track, and yet another connection to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan references the lyrics on this song on his 2020 track, Murder Most Foul, in which he sings, Play it for Carl Wilson too, looking far, far away down Gower Avenue. So he's referring to Desperados Under the Eaves, which features Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys on the background vocals. And Carl's parts in the track are particularly audible on the final closing refrain where he sings, Look Away Down Gower Avenue. I know I read somewhere where Dylan talked about, and I forgot he references his favorite Zevon song. It was not Best Browser and the Eaves. He said, My favorites, I forget what it was. It might have been Mutineer, which is what he covered after Zevon's death. But he said, As for his best song, it's Desperados Under the Eaves. That song doesn't belong to me, though. That's not my favorite. That belongs to humanity. 
Wow. <laughs> Which I think is like high praise from a Nobel laureate. Yeah, that sure is. I, and I thought maybe I had the quote here uh, yeah. for you, but I don't. Going back to that 2009 interview with Dylan that I mentioned earlier, where he mentioned his favorite songwriters, what he said about Warren was this, quote, Join me in L.A. sort of straddles the line between heartfelt and primeval. His musical patterns are all over the place, probably because he's classically trained. There might be three separate songs within a Zivon song, but they're all effortlessly connected. Zivon was a musician's musician, he tortured one. Desperados under the eaves, it's all there. Yep, it's a gorgeous song. California falls into the ocean, like the mystics and statistics say it will, I predict that this hotel will still be standing here until I pay my bill. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's the turns of phrase, everything is so effort, effortlessly put together, yeah. and also just absolutely fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. So, the album comes out to... Obviously more success than his actual debut record, but not a big hit. But that wasn't the most important thing for Asylum Records, because again, this was a very artist-friendly label, and everybody involved, including David Geffen, was very impressed with the work on it. So that was enough for them to greenlight a follow-up record, and several of the songs that would be released on the follow-up record were actually recorded during these sessions, or written, I should say, during these sessions. That record was called Excitable Boy, and it was released in January of 1978. So he had a short tour in between these records, opening for Jackson Brown, again, his greatest advocate at this time. And Jackson... I think was like dealing with the death of his wife. So he was in a very difficult spot, like while they were working on Excitable Boy. The relationship between Warren and Jackson over the course of this record really started to fall apart because one thing I haven't mentioned here, but you will pick up immediately on if you read either of the books about Warren. This guy was one of the hardest people in the world to work with. He was extremely combative, argumentative, just difficult, egotistical, rude, also extremely drunk and high at all points. Even though he didn't really have the commercial success to warrant sort of all that bad behavior and attitude, he sort of came to the scene with the rock star persona, you know, or at least all of the negative qualities of one, firing on all cylinders. And believe it or not, that started to burn some bridges. But that hadn't got to its worst phases yet when this album was being made. Because, again, this album is just jam-packed, full of star power. Again, mostly thanks to Jackson Brown, who was trying to bring in everybody he could to work on this project. He must have been somebody's baby. <laughs> he must have been Jackson Brown's baby. That's, yeah. Yeah. Halfway through the recording process, Jackson actually stepped away from the project and asked Wadi Wachtel to step up and take over, because at this point, Wadi was pretty much the only person who could get through to Warren. And one interesting fact about this record is that decision, I think, saved the album. Sure. Because there was a moment where they almost released an unfinished version of the record that I think could have been disastrous. 
Warren held an album listening party for an early version of the record with some music industry insiders, and it included two songs that Waddy really hated, including like a, a re-recorded version of Tully's Blues, which was on the Dead or Alive oh, album. Yeah. And the response to the party was not good. Like the people who were listening were kind of spacing out and yawning and Waddy picked up on this immediately, and like before they were even done listening to the record, he grabbed Warren and Jackson and dragged them out of the room and very angrily confronted them and saying, This album is not done. It's due in like three weeks, but it is not done. You cannot release it like this. You need to throw out those two tracks and write two new originals. Without me, by the way. <laughs> Get them done within three weeks, which is when the record is due. And Warren and Jackson were absolutely exhausted at this point. But again, because Waddy was the only guy who could really get through to Warren, he agreed. And in just a couple of weeks leading up to when the deadline was, Warren wrote Tenderness on the Block and Lawyers, Guns, and Money. In my opinion, the inclusion of those two songs over the two that were originally there is really what makes this a great record sure. as opposed to like just a good one. And I think that's really important because if it was just a good record, I think Warren was at risk of just being lost in sure. the sea of like 70s songwriters. But I think it was really this change that like bounced this record to the next level. Especially Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Absolutely. The Tenderness on the Block is a good song. But I mean, Lawyers, Guns, and Money is iconic, yeah. I think. Yes, indeed. And we'll talk about that in a moment here. But let's talk about the one that everybody knows. Nighttime in the Switching Yard. Nighttime in the Switching Yard. <laughs> nighttime in the Switching Yard. Uh, ooh, Nighttime in the Switching Yard. That's right. No, actually. We're talking about Werewolves of London which everybody knows this song. What you might not know is that it's Mick Fleetwood and John McVie from Fleetwood Mac playing bass and drums on the track, which is, again, more star power. Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham were on the previous one. Here's two more heavy hitters from Fleetwood Mac. Werewolves of London is definitely... Uh, how can I put this? I say this with no reservations. Werewolves of London is one of the greatest songs in the 70s. I will stand by. Yes. Especially for radio tracks, that is one of the most fun tracks I've ever heard. I talked about it briefly when I did my Halloween special with the ladies from Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes. Stephanie Myers put it on her list as number three. I originally had it as my number one, but because she had it on her list, you know, I took mine off. This is my favorite song for the Halloween season, but I will listen to it anytime during the year. It's a little insensitive because it was an actual Chinese restaurant, but I yep. think as a kid listening to that song on the radio, it was so exciting to hear a song that gets that close to saying the F word. <laughs> yes! Absolutely. It's called Leo Fuchs. Like, it was like, a, and you're like nine, you're like, yeah! Oh, he basically said fuck. <laughs> the song was written in just a couple of minutes. It was a total goof off track. They were just having fun. And I think that's why it's so good, because if you're actually paying attention to the lyrics, you can totally tell these are songwriters just having fun. And that translates. So, Werewolves of London was one of five songs from this record that were released as singles. 
That's a surprisingly large number of singles for a record with nine tracks on it. Uh, I will note that the four other singles did not chart. I didn't realize Nighttime in the Switching Yard is one of the singles. (laughs) Jeez. Can we talk about that song? Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, Werewolves of London is obviously the biggest hit of Warren's career. It hit number 21 on the Billboard charts. And the funny thing about that is that both Warren and Waddy Wachtel were initially furious at the record label for wanting to release that. The label came to them and said, okay, Werewolves of London will be the single. And they were like, are you kidding me? That's a joke song. (laughs) Why would you release that when we have serious songs? You know, and they were like really mad about it. I think they wanted Johnny Strikes Up the Band to be the the lead-off single. It's a good song. Yeah, it is a good song. But in this case, the record label was right. The label is a label for a reason. They have their finger, sometimes at least, on the pulse of what the public wants. I mean, it makes sense. And a single does not necessarily mean the best track on the record. It means the most accessible, the one that's going to grab the most ears who will maybe come over and buy the full product. Any other thoughts about Werewolves of London? No, it's just a great song. You remember when we used to drive around late at night, and this would be on my iPod, and you would roll down the window of my car? I'd haul out of your window. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Here's a little window into (laughs) my psyche. The the foundation of Uh, our friendship. (laughs) These years and years ago, when we both worked at the, the same banquet hall after shifts, we would drive around. I would be completely sober. You would not be. And I, because I loved Werewolves of London, that'd be on my iPod, and you would sing along enthusiastically out the window at other cars sometimes, and that was always fun. So with my late dog, Max, the song song would come on a playlist, and I would frequently also howl (laughs) and work him up into like a frenzy with the howling, so he would also howl. So the two of us would howl together to Werewolves of London. Oh, that's uh, that's amazing. I do love this song. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's not the only great song here. There's a bunch of good songs here. Let's talk about another one. Excitable Boy. <laughs> Jesus. Well, he went down to dinner in his Sunday best. Excitable Boy, they all said. And he propped a pot roast all over his chest. Excitable Boy, they all said. Well, he's just an excitable boy. Our miniseries namesake, Excitable Boy. This song is very dark comedy, right? Yep. But beyond that, the musicianship here is what I like. I think there's got some great sax on this track. I love the ooh-ahs. Because we talked about this. It's uh, referencing back to the Everly Brothers. Right. So <laughs> can you tell us the, the plot of the song, if you will, like what he's singing about? Why is it called Excitable Boy? Well, it's told from the perspective of, like, parents, loved ones, and he's just an excitable boy. Yeah. But he starts with rubbing pot roast on his chest. Which is uh, based on something Warren actually did in real life. Concerning that he didn't... Okay, that's fine. That makes sense, but all right. He bites an usherette on the leg, and then eventually he takes little Susie, and that's the... The reference to the, the Everly the, Brothers. The Everly Brothers reference there to the uh, Junior Brown. Okay. Uh, he he rapes her and kills her, yep. and then he takes then he takes her home. Mm. He spends ten long years in a uh, some sort of a home before being released, and he, when he gets back, he digs up her bones and makes a cage with them. <laughs> and when you say it like that, it yeah. doesn't sound real funny, Joe. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
<laughs> in song form, it works. The humor derives from the the juxtaposition of the absolutely just joyous sound of the music and the sort of classic, almost doo-wop kind of feel of the music, mm-hmm. and then the incredibly dark lyrics. Yeah. Which prompted my mother, when I played this for her in preparation for this, to say, there's something wrong with that man. <laughs> and she's not... <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. See, that's why this track works. <laughs> Gets the right reaction. You know someone else who was pretty alarmed by it? Everyone who's ever heard it. Well, um, me. <laughs> before this album came out, this was like a party song that Warren would play. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> he would go to music industry parties, and his party trick would be he would play the piano, and this was one song he liked to bust out and play for people around one person in particular who really did not like it was a contemporary of his, Joni Mitchell. She did not find it funny at all. Rape's not funny. Right. I understand Joni Mitchell's reservations with the song, obviously. Yeah. I get it. Well, it's it's one of only two songs that, that would ever play on the radio that I can think of that have the word rape in the lyrics anywhere. The other being do-do-do-da-da-da by the police. And even then, in that situation, the lyric is, her logic ties me up and rapes me. It's not about a rape. Uh, it it's, it's, a meta, it's a metaphor versus yeah. an actual Still violent assault. Hear. and yeah, Correct. So you could make the argument this is like the darkest song to ever get into radio rotation. And it's and yeah, it's so peppy. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, oh. <laughs> and the sax comes in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, I don't care. I stand by it. I love this song. It's a, it is it's a good song. It is. All right, but it's not my favorite song of the record. My favorite song of this record is my favorite song of his career, "Lawyers, Guns, and Money." The only song I can think of that has the lyrics "The shit has hit the fan," which blows my mind because that's a great phrase. Why isn't that in more songs? Yeah, that's my hot take about it. I'm hiding in Honduras. I'm a desperate man Send lawyers, guns, and money This shit has hit the fan That's my favorite Warren Zevon song. Lyrics are fun. I mean, there's like a political bend to it. It's about, you know, the stuff that was going yeah. on in Latin America. So, you know, there's, there's some layers he, to this. He's just a guy who just likes to fuck waitresses. And he, he went home with the waitress like he always do. Yep. How is he supposed to know she's what the Russians do? Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's great. Yeah. So what are some of the tracks on Excitable Boy that we haven't mentioned that really do it for you? I'm so, guessing okay. uh, the Nighttime in the Switching so Yard. So Nighttime in the Switching Yard. Yeah. See that train, the midnight train runs both ways. See that train, the midnight train runs both ways. See that train, the midnight train runs both ways. That's a song about bisexuality, right? Okay. Are we, like, I don't know. Re- reading into that? I feel like that's... Read into the, it. It's the switching yard. The midnight train, the midnight train, it goes both ways. Okay. <laughs> right? The midnight train goes both ways. A, a bisexual reading. The switching yard. Of Nighttime and the Switching Yard by Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon, a icon. It's danceable. As is Join Me in L.A. Yes. Also got that kind of disco feel to it. Accidentally Like a Martyr, to me, yeah. is an absolute just... It's brutal. That song is great. I mean, the, the hurt gets worse and the heart gets harder. We made men love, shadow love, 
deadly like a martyr The hurt gets worse and the heart gets harder That is an absolute wallop of a lyric. Yeah. <laughs> I remember hearing that. And like, I almost had to pause the song just to sit on that and think for a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Roland. I mean, obviously, we didn't really mention Roland, the Headless Thompson Gunner. For me, that's probably my favorite track on the album. And that's one of his personal favorites, too. I believe that was the final song he played ever in life. On Letter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that was one that had very dear meaning to him personally. I think he saw what he did and realized he had written an absolute masterpiece of just a lyrical song. Or, or I shouldn't say lyrical, a narrative song. Different than maybe some of the other stuff, a little more personal. I mean, that's a very just, it tells a story almost in a way that like some sort of Irish folk song would or something. I mean it's just a very that reminds me what's the Bob Dylan song that those Irish folk singers covered at the 30th anniversary when the ships come in when the ships come in Bob it writes an original that sounds like a traditional sure. out of time sort of song is this similar to what Warren did here with Roland the headless Thompson gunner Roland the Thompson gunner This concept is this is he's a violent revolutionary, I guess, mm-hmm. that continues till this day to haunt war zones mm-hmm. and where there's conflict. It's an interesting song. And it's beautifully crafted. Yeah. And also to give a quick mention to the album opener, Johnny Strikes Up the Band. Maybe not the deepest lyrically, but a stomping, fun, very cool way to open the, the record. So my broader question to you, you said the word masterpiece just a few moments ago. Is this album his masterpiece? I think it's hard to say between this and his second album. Oh, the self-titled. Okay. That's very interesting because, you know, he wrote a lot of these songs from both records all around the same time. Werewolves of London, Excitable Boy were written during the sessions for the self-titled debut. It was Jackson Brown that set those songs aside because he thought they were too funny and kind of too silly. His vision for Warren's debut, if you will, was that Warren was a serious songwriter and he wanted to show off songwriting chops. And he thought putting those two comedy songs off to the second album would be a better trip for listeners because listeners would be impressed by Warren on the first one and then see this new side to him on the second one. Whereas if there's like kind of this oddball comedy on the first one, they might think he's a bit of a novelty act. I do follow the logic. What I will say is that it's it's funny because if Zevon's known for anything, it's that highly intelligent humor. He's funny. That's what makes him, honestly. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's get to wrapping this up here. All right, because we we've talked about his his musical output, but this was all coming at an extremely high personal cost for Warren. Warren's drinking and drug habit at this point of the late seventies was beyond almost anything I've ever read in the dozens and dozens of rock biographies that I've I've come across. Like this is like Keith Richards level. And unfortunately, not really funny in the way that, like, Keith Richards had that persona of... It wasn't really, like, parties, hotel room trashing like the Eagles. It was like he was getting beyond drunk off his ass, usually alone at his house. And then if his wife, Crystal, came home 
at the wrong time, he would be just a demon from hell who would unfortunately occasionally beat the daylights out of her. And Ugh. and don't, yeah, don't do like that. And, yep, do heinous things, wake up the next day, not remember a second of it, accuse her of, of making it all up. Pretty despicable stuff. And that was with his wife, you know. He was having bad situations with his friends and, you know, musical partners. You know, stories of him going to see, like, Jackson Brown in concert with a buddy of his. And then, like, in the parking lot, revealing that he had brought a gun. And then waving his gun at security. (laughs) And having to be rushed out of there. There's another story of him going backstage at a Bruce Springsteen concert and being completely blackout drunk and causing such a big scene and tripping over Bruce's very expensive audio equipment, causing so much of a scene that Springsteen like burned up the very limited pre-show prep time he had to help calm Warren down and get him to his seat. When he was going out, he was a disaster and the act was getting really old really fast and his... Friendship with Jackson Brown was falling away. His musical partnership with Wadi Wachtel was extremely strained. He wanted Springsteen's producer to produce his next record. That was a no-go, you know, that kind of thing. So this is really starting to affect him in in a bad way. And the worst story, I think, of them all, maybe the darkest story at least, is his wife Crystal wakes up in the middle of the night to the sound of gunshots and she comes downstairs, goes out into the yard, goes to the guest house. And at 2 a.m., Warren has gone out to his guest house, set up a copy of Excitable Boy on the sofa, and just started firing rounds directly at the album cover, which is his own face. Right. That is incredibly dark. And it was at this point that Crystal, I guess, finally had enough and rang the alarm and got a lot of people in his life to have an intervention and they tried to get him to agree to get cleaned up and get sober. And he did agree, but it did not take at first and it would take quite a while before he would actually clean up his act and and get sober. But we will talk about that in our next episode. So we are going to go out on a bit of a dour note, but that's kind of where he was at the end of the seventies. He was coming off some of the greatest success of his entire career, but he was handling it in, like, the worst imaginable way. Yeah. Well, we'll close this part off here with a quote from David Landau. That's John Landau's brother. John Landau is Springsteen's producer. Yeah. And David Landau was also Warren's guitar player. And he said this about Warren. The reality is that to have confronted Warren about anything back then would be to confront him about everything. It was not a time of half measures, and there he is, in the middle of a tour of what appears to be his career-making album. So nobody wants to mess with that. On the other hand, the guy's out of his mind. (laughs) (laughs) I think it says it all. Yeah. He's just an excitable boy, Joe. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, before we get out of here, real quick... I, I know you don't have a lot of patience for this segment, but I like looking at the high-profile cover versions of some of the artists' songs that came out around this time because occasionally other artists score bigger hits with the cover versions. I don't know that this was really the case in the 70s. The main artist who was doing some legwork for Warren as far as recording his songs 
in the late 70s was Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. And that is, again, largely due to Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown was really pushing her to get Warren's songs on her records. And she recorded several songs from the self-titled album. She covered... Hasten Down the Wind in 1976. She did not release that as a single, but she named her album for it. That's interesting. So that's that's pretty big. She did versions of Poor Poor Pitiful Me and Carmelita on her 1977 album Simple Dreams. I love her version of Poor Poor Pitiful Me. She changes the lyrics up a little bit near the end, but I think it really works. When I met a boy in the Mohammed's Radio for her 1978 album Living in the USA. Personally, I think Linda has just a really beautiful voice, so I tend to like almost all of these covers, but critically, they weren't always well received. Have you uh, listened to any of these tracks? Yeah, she's great. I mean, she's just, I think Linda Ronson's fantastic. Yeah, her late 70s rock era. Yes, underrated. All right, and then the only other cover that's notable to at least me is that a band called Boulder, which has been completely lost to time, covered Warren's track Join Me in L.A. for their one and only album in 1979. I don't know if this was released as a single, but it doesn't really matter because it was not a hit and the band broke up right away after this record. I found something that'll never be nothing And I found it in L.A. Join me it because the guitar player for Boulder was Stan Bush, who was a previous guest on this show. Yes. And I reached out to Stan to see if he had any memories of recording this song, and he did not get back to me. All right, so our, our final segment, let's uh, uh, list our five favorite Warren Zevon songs of the 1970s. If uh, you're not ready, I'll go first. In no particular order... My top five Warren Zevon songs from this era are Excitable Boy, Werewolves of London, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me, Johnny Strikes Up the Band. Four out of the five are from the Excitable Boy album. Obviously, that's my favorite record of this era. Yeah, I mean, they're, that's, they're all good choices. I guess that's the problem is that, like, realistically, like, his two best albums came out at this time period. In terms of just, like, the, the strength of the songs on those albums. But I think accidentally, like, A Martyr... Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, Desperados Under the Eaves, and then did I do Werewolves of London yet? No. No. Or, yeah, then yeah. Werewolves, probably. Overexcitable Boy? Yeah. I, because, for all the reasons we mentioned earlier. Yeah. The howling out the window, the yeah. whole thing. It's just, it's, you know, <laughs> it, is it necessarily a better song than Excitable Boy? No. Hey, we're not, we're not doing that. We're doing our favorites. It's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Excitable Boy's got, it. honestly, it's it almost is too dark. Okay. Like I, it's 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 fine to tear up an old to, to tear up an old lady, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, maybe it goes too far for that one. So we'll, we'll play us out with lawyers, guns, and money. Hell yeah! All right, week. let's do it. Okay, and then uh, coming up in our next episode, Warren Zevon in the nineteen eighties. We're going to talk about his records, Bad Luck Streak and Dancing School, The Envoy, and Sentimental Hygiene. 
We're going to talk about the Stand in the Fire yeah. live album, which I know you're excited for. We're also going to talk about some collaborations he did with the guys from R.E.M. So I do love gods, man. Yeah, I think that one's going to be pretty interesting. Otherwise, as far as episodes for this show, my next solo episode is going to be a look back at the discography of Wang Chung. And I think I can announce the next guest on this show will be a gentleman named Guy Evans, who wrote a book called Nitro, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. We're going to be stepping a little bit outside of the world of classic rock, uh, talk about a larger media topic, professional wrestling of the 1990s. Uh, Guy's agreed to come on the show, so I'm going to talk about that book and a new book he wrote with Eric Bischoff. So more on that coming later. Otherwise, I need to recommend and also cite two books. One, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, The Dirty Life and Times of Warren Zevon. That was put together by his ex-wife, Crystal Zevon. And another book, Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Warren Zevon by C.M. Cushions. These are both fantastic reads. If you like Warren Zevon, absolutely get your hands on both of these books. They will tell you his story at a much deeper level than we're able to hear, so I really recommend you check him out. Otherwise, with that, Chris, thank you for joining me here. And, uh, Dad, get me out of this. Lawyers, guns, and money. Take it away. <laughs> I went home with a waitress The way I always do Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Play That Podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash play that podcast and subscribe to our youtube channel at youtube.com slash c slash play that rock and roll lots of great supplemental material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms as play that rock and roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast and finally the big ask number four please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. 
Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.